why can't I say wild without sounding like Matthew McConaughey? <laughs> wow, far. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, July 16th, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer slash co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how are you doing today? Maddie, I am ready to rip, baby. I have my cup of coffee right here, right next to me, and I am just looking for a fight. I'm ready to go, baby. Don't record me until I've had my coffee, Nick <laughs> <laughs> We'll have t-shirts made. Yep. <laughs> if you're new here, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we're happy to have you as a listener. Before we get started, we wanted to read one more listener review on Apple Podcasts, just as a thank you for supporting the show. All right, so Kaylee V6 says, just listened to the first two episodes and am super impressed so far. The TPT crew is small but mighty, and I've highly enjoyed the content they've shared so far. The quick hit section where Matt and Nick break down some environmental headlines from this week is great. Love how they plan to rotate guest hosts and interviewees to supplement that week's focus topic. Looking forward to next week's episode. Thank you, Kaylee V6. I am very curious who that is. No, um, <laughs> Kaylee's also been helping out quite a bit with some of the posts on our Instagram. She's been doing a lot of the graphic designs. So if you like those, you can also thank Kaylee. Yeah, those are sweet. Yeah, yeah, she's been doing an awesome job. And we found that her review this week was really relevant to this week's episode because we're going to have a few more quick hits than what we normally do and what you might expect out of the show. And the feature discussion will be a little bit shorter just to keep it under 60 minutes. Yeah, so we will keep reading a review or two each week. So make sure you leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so we can thank you right here on the show. And then also let us know what you think of this week's episode with the extra few quick hits. Yeah, and I think that's as good a time as ever to dive right into those quick hits. So, uh, Nikki, what do you say we kick it off? I'm ready to go, Maddie. Let's let's get right into it. So the first one comes from Lynn Doan and Noreen S. Malik of Bloomberg Green and is titled, A Wildfire is Pushing California Towards the Brink of Blackouts. Three electrical lines in Southern Oregon were knocked out by a wildfire, and officials in California and Nevada have warned of rotating blackouts over the weekend due to the power emergency caused by the loss of these critical electric lines. The transmission system affected by the wildfires is known as the California-Oregon Interti, and California relies heavily on it for its energy imports. Because of the fires, power supply has been reduced by as much as 3,500 megawatts, which for reference, One megawatt can power between 400 to 900 homes, depending on the area and the energy usage. 
So, you know, with 3,500 megawatts, we are talking about thousands upon thousands of homes that have had their energy supply at the very least reduced. On Sunday, Californians got some relief as conditions stabilized. But high temperatures are expected to continue in the region, and higher temperatures means higher demand for energy as people need to keep cool. I mean, you're going to have your ceiling fans running, you're going to have your air conditioning running because it's hot out there. If demand continues to exceed the energy supply, California utilities might be ordered to spread short power outages. That way they can extend the available electricity as much as possible. Wow. Yeah, that's that's terrible. But um, the authors threw in a quote that I wanted to bring up, and it's the fact that a single wildfire has brought America's most populous and affluent state to the brink of blackouts is among the most powerful demonstrations yet of how vulnerable the world's power grids have become to the effects of climate change. Uh, Matt, do you want to break that down maybe a little bit further? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good idea. And honestly, a really important quote that you brought up. I was uh, I was actually going to bring that up if you didn't. So nice. <laughs> um, yeah, we talk often on this show about how climate change impacts our day-to-day life. And as climate change leads to rising temperatures and droughts, the risk for wildfires becomes more severe. So just because California is one of the world's wealthiest economies doesn't mean it's immune from the effects of climate change. And I think something like this, where they said it's showing how vulnerable the world's power grids are, I I think it almost reinforces that fact that a state as wealthy as California is still being impacted by this. I mean, if it's happening to them, it's going to happen to all of us at some point. So um, another thing that the authors point out that I actually didn't consider before this, but it makes total sense, and I kind of feel like I should have picked up on this earlier. Extreme drought and dry conditions shrink the world's available hydropower reserves. So I've talked about hydro a bit on this show, kind of in passing, and I usually look at hydropower as an important slice of the pie when you're considering this clean energy future, but the effects of climate change lessen the impact of hydropower. If higher temperatures lead to more droughts, there's less water, and that impacts energy. It's not like it's just the drinking water or the agricultural water that we're talking about. And I guess I kind of never connected those dots, but they laid it out very plainly for me to see in this article. And I, I kind of took a step back and I was like, you probably should have thought of that earlier, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In Nevada, the story is similar. However, Envy Energy Incorporated said it was not forced to resort to blackouts, but even Nevada still encouraged energy conservation for its customers over the weekend. Um, wildfires in 2020 led to 4.3 million acres burning in California, resulting in the deaths of 33 people and 10,500 structures burning down. Last August saw California's first rolling blackouts since the U.S. West energy crisis in 2000, and California might be facing those again in back-to-back years. And on Tuesday, CNN actually reported that California wildfires have scorched three times more land than at this point last year. Um, To peel back the layers a little bit more, 2020 was the worst year on record in terms of wildfire destruction, and we've already passed that three times over at this point. Um, So without some sort of great scaling back, we're probably looking at another record that I'm sure Californians were hoping they wouldn't hit. Yeah. Yeah, wildfires are extremely scary. They destroy everything in their path. Like, not a good time. And it's just going to come for for more and more states. Like, I think we see it on the news. And as, like, people being from the Northeast, we're just like, oh, yeah, it's okay. It's California. You know, it's on fire again. 
but it's it's going up to Washington. It's going to Oregon. Like it's it's going to affect everyone eventually. So when you were living in LA, did you live close enough where the wildfires were kind of apparent, or were you a bit removed? No, it was very apparent. I think I actually mentioned on the show one time. I, it was actually when Dan oh, yeah. was on, yeah when Dan was on. Uh, I talked about it a little bit, so go ahead and listen to that episode if you want to hear my story. But it was really scary. Like I never have experienced anything like it. The sky literally just turns dark and gray. It could be 2 p.m. It doesn't matter. It's dark and gray, and there's literally just like these white specks just falling from the sky. Like we had one literally in our backyard. So um, yeah, super scary. And then there's another one in like downtown Hollywood. So yeah, that was, it was right around us. That's basically what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. And it's becoming more, you know, more common and more severe as each year goes on. So one of those things that I don't want people to need to get used to, but it's looking like people are going to have to get used to it unless we make some drastic changes. Yeah. Totally agree. All right, so let's get into the next quick hit. So it is titled, People Dumped Their Pets Into Lakes. Officials say, now football-sized goldfish are taking over. It was written by Reese Tibalt of the Washington Post. Yeah, this one was actually sent to me by my sister on Monday, so thank you, Julianne. And I felt it was a pretty good topic to bring up on the show because officials in Burnsville, Minnesota, which is about 15 miles south of Minneapolis, shared several photos of massive goldfish from a local lake. Um, As always, the links to the articles are in the show notes. Would definitely recommend, if you're not going to read this article, at least just open it up just to see how big of goldfish we're talking about here. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure we've all kind of heard that old tale that goldfish kind of just grow into whatever container they live in. But it's always an interesting reminder when you see one that lives in a lake or a pond and just gets absolutely massive. (laughs) So the problem here got to a point where the city's official Twitter account posted, quote, please don't release your pet goldfish into ponds and lakes. They grow bigger than you think and contribute to poor water quality by mucking up the bottom sediments and uprooting plants. The problem has been getting worse in recent years as goldfish are surprisingly resilient animals. Um, They can actually survive in severe conditions and weather winters um, in the bodies of water that have been frozen over, which means they can also live without oxygen for months. And that trait allows them to dominate an ecosystem once it gets introduced. So Burnsville's natural resources specialist, Caleb Ashling, said, you see a goldfish in the store and they're these small little fish. When you pull a goldfish the size of a football out of a lake, It makes you wonder how they can even be the same type of animal. And, you know, for me, I I always think about um, the Mayapak Fire Department's carnival every year. Shout out our hometown. (laughs) And every year we get these people who come back and they have like two goldfish, one in each hand in a different bag that they won playing carnival games. And most of them probably don't survive more than like a month. But if they do and then people decide I don't want them anymore and then they go introduce them into a pond or a lake, it becomes a really big issue. And I think that brings up a greater point of just don't mess with natural ecosystems. Um, An example I thought of is giving leftovers to raccoons in your backyard. Like you wouldn't want to do that because then they keep coming back and they get used to getting food from you as opposed to surviving in the wild. Uh, General rule of thumb is if an animal wouldn't find food in nature, you shouldn't introduce them to that food. Um, It makes them reliant on you and also makes them sick half the time. I mean, you can give birds bird seed, 
but you wouldn't want to give them bread because it's bad for their stomachs. It's the same sort of principle there. In this case, the goldfish are able to take over the environment and have a huge impact on plants and other animals. So in general, just keep wild wild. And that's sort of the <laughs> the moral of that story. <laughs> yeah. The pictures of the goldfish were literally borderline like scary. I didn't even know they could get like even half as big as that. So that was super scary. Um, and then also another point in this article was super scary was uh, officials in nearby Carver County removed 50,000 goldfish from local waterways in a single day. Yeah, it's kind of wild when you look at them because like this comparison is very stupid, but we're just going to go with it. With the gills being on the side, they almost look like those Nerf whistling footballs or like they're just <laughs> these massive things that like air is going to stream through. But no, like this is a living fish, you know what I mean? And, and yeah, that's that's one of the bigger ones that they showed in that article. But you got to think even something smaller than that, it's still going to be eating a lot. It's still going to be taking up a lot of the resources. And like they said, uprooting plants, mucking up the water. They're not supposed to be in those local ponds and it's going to start to outcompete some of the fish that are supposed to be there. Yeah. I literally thought it was a koi fish. I was like, oh, okay, this is like a, they pulled this thing out of like a koi pond or something. Anyway, let's go on to the next one. Um, and this one comes from David Williams of CNN, who reported that extreme heat cooked mussels, clams, and other shellfish alive on beaches in Western Canada. Yeah, this one is just wild to me. And actually our next this story and the next one after are going to be about it. So um, we talked about the current heat wave a lot in the Pacific Northwest, but this story just blew my mind. Um, the heat wave in British Columbia is being blamed for a massive die-off of the animals Nick mentioned in the headline. A professor in the University of British Columbia's zoology department named Christopher Harley found countless dead mussels that had actually popped open on a beach near his home in Vancouver. He estimated that billions with a B, of mussels, clams, and other animals may have died from the heat and said that he could smell the beach before he got to it as many of the animals had already begun rotting, which that's just a disgusting visual. And I'm not even there to witness all of that. But just hearing that sheer number and, you know, trying to picture that smell, it's not its not really a fun image. And it sounds like a wild estimate, but he explains how 50 to 100 mussels could live in a spot the size of the palm of your hand. And then you think there's 4,000 miles of shoreline along the Salish Sea where this beach is located. So one billion starts to make a lot more sense. Mussels attach themselves to surfaces like rocks, and they're used to being exposed to the air and sunlight during low tide. However, they are not able to survive temperatures over 100 degrees for very long, and surface temperatures at this beach were as high as 125 degrees. So, you know, it's well above their range and the heat wave's been going on for a long time. So that's a lot of exposure. At this time of year, low tide also hits at the hottest parts of the day. So these animals just had to wait until the tide could rise and cool them off. Unfortunately, that didn't happen quick enough. This is one of those things that makes the effects of climate change extremely easy to understand. One, animals are dying. Two, that impacts the local food chain. And three, that's going to impact humans that eat shellfish and fish for those mussels and clams and other animals that live there for a living. Sometimes I wonder, you know, what's it going to take for people to care more about climate change? And I think if your diet is disrupted, that might do the trick. 
The scariest part for me is that Dr. Harley said these sorts of events seem to be happening more often. So this massive die off will not be as uncommon moving forward. Yeah. I feel like every single week we get another news story about how heat is affecting whatever it is, like the planet, people, wildlife, like literally every single week for the past like three weeks on this show, we probably have had a heat story. Um, and I totally agree with you that like people who are just completely blissfully ignorant of climate change, like maybe missing out on some seafood or the price getting bumped up, maybe that will be enough to kind of push them to say, oh, sh like what's going on here? Like let's get into some of these issues. Yeah, and, and it's interesting too, like we have had a lot of heat news on this show and, uh, you know, it's something that we do try to mix in some positive stories each week because some of the news can get kind of sad and this is one of those stories, but unfortunately this is too big of a story to not cover. So, um, yeah. it actually kind of perfectly brings up the next one that we're getting into. <laughs> yeah. So I'll get right into it. So, uh, Katrin Einhorn's article in the New York times titled like in post apocalyptic movies, heat wave killed marine wildlife in mass kind of just reinforces this story. Yeah, so this one mentioned the Pacific Northwest die-off of mussels and clams, but it also talked about sockeye salmon. So I just wanted to include that in this discussion as you know a secondary source, and also it talks about a different animal with the same effects happening to it. So the combination of heat and drought has had a great impact on the freshwater species that live in this area as well. And scientists have begun to consider domino effects as to how these die-offs begin to impact sea ducks, which feast on mussels in the winter before migrating to their summer breeding grounds in the Arctic. The scientists are now trying to discover if these ducks will have enough food to survive that trip. Don Chapman, who's a retired fisheries biologist who used to specialize in salmon and steelhead trout, believes we're headed for disaster. And he said that the difficulties faced by salmon is an extreme example of how all species will have lower chances of survival as their habitats change. And in some cases, the habitats even degrade due to climate change. Luckily, scientists have begun capturing a variety of endangered sockeye salmon and bringing them to hatcheries to figure out how to proceed in order to best help the species' long-term survival. And Dr. Harley, who we talked about earlier, was featured in this article as well, and he closed it on a very important note. I want to find the positives, and there are some, but it's pretty overwhelming right now. Because if we become too depressed or too overwhelmed, we won't keep trying and we need to keep trying. So it's not like it's not fixable. It's just going to take a lot of work and it's going to be a challenge. But, you know, like we said about bringing up positive stories, I mean, it's not insurmountable to fix this problem. It's just definitely a problem that we can't just assume will go away on its own. Yeah. And this kind of goes back to last week's episode and the TED talk that we mentioned that Clover Hogan did, friend of the program. Um <laughs> And yeah, I think her sentiment is very similar to Dr. Harley's. You know, we have to keep trying. We need to not get too overwhelmed by it and not let eco-anxiety get the best of us. Yeah, agreed. All right, so this next one comes from The Guardian where Graham Redfern reported Australian environment groups urge UN to put Great Barrier Reef on in danger list. Yeah, so this one might sound like a scary headline, but, um, you know, we talked about reefs when we talked about National Geographic's before the flood two weeks ago. So it's nothing new to know that reefs are struggling. This I took as a very good story 
because it's encouraging to me that Australia's major environment groups are trying to get some more momentum in protecting the Great Barrier Reef, which is the world's largest and probably well-known reef. Um, I actually didn't know this, but fun fact, it's one of the seven natural wonders of the world. So I would assume giving it the in-danger classification and focusing on its protection would make sense to the United Nations World Heritage Committee, which determines what's actually on that in-danger list. The reef was last considered for the in-danger classification in 2015, and unfortunately since then has suffered three mass bleaching events. Um, and a mass bleaching event occurs when entire reef tracts or regions bleach completely. When we say coral bleaching, we're talking about a few different factors, and that's increased ocean temperatures, storm runoff and pollution, overexposure to sunlight, and extreme low tides. When one or all of those factors kind of come into play, the algae that lives on the coral will die off, and that leaves the coral vulnerable to other impacts that lead to bleaching. One of the organizations known as UNESCO recommended the in-danger classification because of the effects of coral bleaching caused by fossil fuel burning and how that's pushing up ocean temperatures and the lack of progress on targets to lower pollution levels flowing into the reef's waters from farms. So basically what they're looking for is more accountability so that fossil fuel targets and pollution runoff goals are both met. Now, I have a question for you, Matt. Are there any preventative measures we can take I'm not talking about like the companies, I'm talking about like more on a personal individual scale that we can take in order to kind of counteract the effects of coral bleaching. Yeah. So, um, you know, for someone like you or me who doesn't live near a coral reef, this is more of a tourism answer, but make sure you're using sunscreen that doesn't have harmful chemicals in it. Because a lot of times what studies have found is that areas with a lot of tourism where you go scuba diving and you go snorkeling, you don't want to get sunburned. Totally reasonable to not want to have a miserable time after you get out of the water. <laughs> yeah. But some of the sunscreens that people will put on will get into that waterway and those chemicals will break down and go into the reefs. Um, and that starts to contribute to some of the pollution that we talked about and how that impacts coral bleaching. So that's how someone like me or you could. Um, if you're looking for more people that live nearby, it's a lot more of just pollution management really. Right. And making sure that, you know, local cities and municipalities have measures in place to make sure that fertilizer and insecticides that are used on farms doesn't end up in the waterways that are going to end up bleaching the coral. Gotcha. All right. So let's go ahead and close out the quick hits on a positive note. How about that? Uh, so CNN's Sharon Pruitt-Young reported, finally some good news. China says giant pandas are no longer endangered. Yeah, this was posted in a couple different places, but I wanted to use this one because I thought uh, Shannon Pruitt-Young's use of finally some good news was a little tongue-in-cheek. It's <laughs> like, yeah, sometimes it's tough to uh, maintain this positive outlook when you're talking about environmental news. So right on you, Sharon. <laughs> um, this is awesome news for one of the most charismatic ambassadors for wildlife in the world. And Chinese officials have updated the giant panda's status to vulnerable. So their population still needs to be monitored to make sure that it heads more towards not being listed as threatened at all. But this is a feel-good story that pandas are not actively endangered right now. There are now 1,800 giant pandas living in the wild, which is a number that officials say is due to the country's devotion to maintaining nature reserves and other initiatives in recent years. And it's not just the giant panda that's benefiting from these conservation efforts in Asia. 
Siberian tigers, Asian elephants, and the crested ibis have all seen a gradual increase in their population numbers in recent years. The International Union for Conservation of Nature, or the IUCN, took the giant panda off their endangered species list in 2016, but Chinese officials challenged this decision. And this is something that I thought was really cool because um, in 2016, I remember reading that you know the IUCN took it off the red list and that pandas were good. But Chinese officials challenged it because they said that neglecting or relaxing their conservation work could lead to populations and habitats suffering irreversible losses and their achievements being lost. And that's according to China's State Forestry Administration. So I thought it was kind of cool that you know, China got the green light to lax up their protections on pandas. And they were like, no, we're going to really make sure that the panda survives long term before we lax this. So to emphasize a species endangered status for a little while longer than what might seem necessary doesn't bother me at all. With something like this, I think it's better to play it safe and continue conservation efforts past when you think you might need it rather than risking any sort of extinction that could happen if you, you know, pull the goalie a little too soon. Yeah, that's a great point. You got to just keep going. Um, cue the panda sneezing meme or gif. <laughs> <laughs> Let it ride. Love me some pandas. Uh, Matt, do you want to take a break? Yes, we will be right back. And after the break, we're going to talk about fracking. Fun stuff. Next week, we'll also be breaking down Europe's blueprint to reduce carbon emissions by 55% by 2030, which was announced shortly after we recorded. So Matt, this weekend I was at a bonfire and it was a little cold outside, a little bit of chill in the air, and my nose started to run. And you know what? I had nothing to wipe my nose with. Please do not tell me you turned back into a sleeve guy. Matt, I had to. Oh my goodness. You know what would have fixed that? What's that? The presenting sponsor of the planet today, Vala Alta. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high performance daily use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the materials, historic craftsmanship, and natural antimicrobial properties, Handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Guys, don't be like me, okay? Don't be a schmuck and use your sleeve. Don't be a sleeve guy. Get yourself a Vala Alta. Go get them. ValaAlta.com. Welcome back to the planet today. Our feature discussion for today's episode will be about fracking and the forever chemicals that are linked to them. Yeah, so before we dive into that, uh, we wanted to explain what exactly fracking is for people who might be familiar with the term, but might not know exactly what that is. Yeah, fracking is when some sort of liquid is injected at a really high pressure, typically into bedrock, but it could be other forms of rock structure. And what that high pressure injection will do is force open any cracks that exist already. Um, And once those cracks get 
forced open, oil or gas can be easily extracted. The liquid used for injection is usually made up of water, sand, and chemicals. So first, the frackers will drill a deep well below the water table and then inject that liquid mixture, which helps the gas flow out to the well from there. Um, The pros of fracking are that it's a relatively cheap source of energy. It makes up 5.6% of total American employment, and it makes some people a lot of money. It's estimated to be a $68 billion industry by 2024. The cons of fracking include that it's estimated to cause between 13 to $29 billion per year by 2025 due to methane leakage causing health damages. It's known to cause small earthquakes where the wells are present, and each well can only be fracked up to 20 times. So, you know, it's not as bad as drill once and then abandon, but only getting 20 uses out of something is not exactly a renewable source of energy. And I do want to just break that down, the numbers that we said kind of in passing. If it's a $68 billion industry by 2024, but it's costing 13 to $29 billion per year, it's one of those things where we need to weigh the true cost instead of just looking at all the revenue and profits that are being made and say, wow, $68 billion is a big deal. Like it is, it's no small penny, but at what cost? Yeah. So there's actually a stat I wanted to mention and it's from the NRDC. And they said that in 2016, the average Permian Basin fracking job used 10,496,987 gallons of water which, oddly enough, is enough to fill 15.9 Olympic swimming pools. Jeez. I'm, I'm glad that you or they put that into the term of swimming pools because I have a hard time when I picture gallons of how much that actually is. But, dude, 16 Olympic swimming pools for each well, that's just, I mean, that's just wasteful. <laughs> like, if, if nothing that's else. That's the only way to put it. Yeah, if nothing else. You know, if we're just looking at this as water is getting injected in, And we're not looking at it from, oh, gas and oil are being taken out or, oh, all those chemicals are getting dumped in. It's wasteful. But then you do factor in, you know, what the water is being used for. And it's it's a problem. Yeah. So when fracking is going on, the mixture that's pumped in uses one thousand eighty four different chemicals. And while the majority of the fracking fluid, about ninety nine point five percent is made of sand and water. That remaining half a percent is made up of a lot of different non-natural substances. And half a percent might not seem like a lot, but like Nick just said, you're almost looking at 16 Olympic-sized swimming pools for each well. So half a percent of that is still a ton of chemicals that are getting dumped in. And as we mentioned, methane is released during the fracking process, which has a global warming potential of 84 times that of carbon dioxide over a two-decade period. Methane doesn't stay in the atmosphere as long as carbon dioxide does, but while it's up there, it causes a way greater harm. Another issue is that fracking is exempt from the Safe Drinking Water Act, and that act regulates underground injection activities, but for whatever reason does not cover fracking. In Pennsylvania alone, where fracking is a popular practice, over 260 instances of private water wells have been contaminated by fracking since 2005. That just seems like completely irresponsible to me that you could just say, oh, fracking's like not a part of the Safe Drinking Water Act. Like, uh, yeah, we're contaminating the ground, but no, we're good. Yeah, there's definitely a reason um, that I have not looked into and I should. Um, if I had to take a guess, it probably has something to do with the fracking lobbyists, but 
I don't know. I can't. I can't say for certain on this show. So uh, we will implore the listeners to uh, do a little deep dive. <laughs> but yeah, this this sort of thing always just kind of rubs me the wrong way because you look at a lot of people who will advocate for fracking and they're like, yeah, it's doing so much good for our energy system. It's like, yeah, but like if people are drinking the water that's been you know contaminated by this practice, who's going to use the energy if those people get sick and die? Yeah, and it's not just that like it, it also negatively impacts infants health at birth so there was a study in Oklahoma which showed that babies born to parents who live closer to fracking sites have been found to be underweight and premature more often than those who were born to parents who live further from fracking sites and with this it's like a direct link to say when you're born underweight and premature you are more likely to have other health effects as a newborn so if you're living in an area that makes you at more risk to those sort of issues, it's probably not a good idea to do that practice in, you know, heavily populated areas. And unfortunately that's often the case with fracking. Yeah. It just seems like, and I say this a lot on this show, but like, it just seems like a short term profit for a long term complete like destruction of like a community. Like I was watching this video and I think it was also by the NRDC And they were talking about like Susquehanna County in Pennsylvania and like the damage that fracking has done in that community. And it's just like so screwed up that you just don't care at all about like basically just everyday people like that you just are going to completely frack and destroy their drinking water and contaminate the ground. I don't know. It just seems super careless. Yeah. And I think the issue, it's an important thing that you just brought up too, is like it's profits over people in this case where the people who are benefiting the most guarantee that they don't live next to a fracking site. Yeah. And, you know, they have that kind of just like distance from the area that they can turn a blind eye and be like, okay, yeah, it's harming some people potentially, but you know, my family's doing great. It's just, it's unfortunate. It's, it's, I don't even want to call it negligence because at this point they probably know that it's not, it's not a safe practice, but it's making a lot of people a lot of money. And also it's making a lot of people enough money to put dinner on their kitchen table. Yeah. Like we said, it employs 5.6% of the American population. So it's not like we're just talking about a small little industry here where if you shut it down, everyone's better off. Like some people are going to have some short term losses because of that. Yeah. Uh, And we wanted to focus today kind of on the chemicals involved in this process because the New York Times reported on Monday that the EPA approved toxic chemicals for fracking a decade ago. Yeah, this um, this kind of reminded me of, I think it was our first episode where one of the quick hits, I was like, Exxon knew, <laughs> except <laughs> in this case, you know, you don't expect the Environmental Protection Agency, like really want to reinforce what the P stands for there. Um, you don't expect them to know about something and approve of it. And unfortunately, that was the case here. So um, this article, which we're going to link in the show notes, shows a drilling rig above a well right in a suburban neighborhood outside of uh, Denver. And for reasons like we discussed a couple minutes ago, it's just very unsettling to me. Um, We talked about the effects of water, the effects on newborns, um, and we see this just beautiful home that's maybe 100 feet from a drilling rig. I just I, I couldn't look at it without thinking you know, it's a big house. There's probably five bedrooms or so. When that family decides to have children, if they haven't already, 
are they going to be okay? And I don't know. Yeah. And you shouldn't have to answer that question. Like that should not even be like a, a, a thought, you know, like that your kid might not live past like the age of five. It's just so screwed up to me. It's so careless. Yeah. And, and I bet a lot of people that live close to those sites are having those conversations. Like, is it safe for us to be here? Yeah. Or do we have to uproot our family home and, and restart? So no, it's tough. It's definitely a, a tough situation. And, you know, I feel for anyone who lives close to these sites. But in this article, Hiroko Tabuchi said, the chemicals that oil companies have been allowed to pump into the wells break down into toxic substances called PFAs, which is a class of long lasting compounds that pose a threat to people and wildlife. Uh, PFAs stands for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. So I'm sure you'll understand if we just call them PFAs for this episode. <laughs> I, uh, I got that on the first try and we are going to leave it at that. <laughs> uh, the EPA approved the use of these chemicals in 2011, despite its own concerns about their toxicity, according to records which have been reviewed by the New York Times. The records were obtained under the Freedom of Information Act and are among the first public indication that PFAs may be present in the fluids used for fracking. Just to make things even more clear, PFAs are also known as forever chemicals. The EPA pointed out that the chemicals, quote, could degrade the environment and could, quote, persist in the environment and be toxic to people, wild mammals, and birds, end quote. The EPA recommended further testing but the tests weren't mandatory and there's no sign that those tests were carried out. And for anyone who's ever gotten in trouble by your parents when they say, Hey, we're not going to take your phone away, but you need to go to bed at 10 o'clock tonight. You might stay on your phone past 10 o'clock because there's no one checking you. So even though the EPA recommended this testing, why would anyone do that if they know it's going to get them in trouble unless it's mandatory? I don't know how you could say it could degrade the environment and it could be toxic to people, wild animals and birds, and then just be like, nope, we're not going to do the test though. <laughs> it might be. We'll just assume. Or it might we'll not. Assume. <laughs> Let us know. Yeah. And then after identifying that fracking might be a problem due to the nature of the practice and how, you know, those chemicals kind of get involved, the EPA allowed the chemicals to be used without much regulation. Along with PFAs being linked directly to cancer, birth defects, and other serious health problems, they make it harder for emergency workers to handle fires and spills. And just last week, we talked about an oil spill out in the Gulf of Mexico. That sounds like a doozy to handle. And doing anything that's going to make something like that harder to handle just seems like a serious oversight to me. PFAs are a problem because they not only persist in the environment, like we mentioned, but they accumulate inside the human body. Now, something that's worth pointing out is that Congress and President Biden have moved to better regulate PFAs, which contaminate the drinking water of as many as 80 million Americans. Jeez. This is not a small industry we're talking about here. But, you know, it, it's definitely a good thing that they are looking at better regulating them. And frankly, I hope they do. There's a public health toxicologist and former director of the Environmental Epidemiology Department at the Connecticut Department of Health named David R. Brown who brought up in one of the articles um, the process calling for chemicals to be put into a high-temperature, high-pressure environment. High temperature and high pressure makes for a highly reactive environment. So, again, it's not like you're just pumping in these chemicals in a little bit of water, they get diluted, and they don't do anything, and they kind of go away. Like, 
it's highly reactive. There's going to be impacts that are caused by the pressure in there, by the temperature in there, and that's going to make them break down. And when they break down, they linger forever as far as we know. They might break down in a thousand years, but what's the difference at that point? And the fact that these chemicals will essentially just linger there in the environment and stay by those drilling sites forever just makes the problem worse to sit with. And you know, when I say stay by the drilling sites, it's not like they're just going to be located there. I mean, you drill past the water table. So as those chemicals start to work their way into the water table, it's going to spread. Like you can't just frack in a 10 foot by 10 foot square and expect all the damage to stay there. It's going to spread. Yeah. And it's just like, do you really want to make like sections of the USA like literally just inhabitable, like uninhabitable. I don't know. That makes no sense to me. It's kind of just the polar opposite of what we talked about episode one with the national parks where it's like, Hey, we're going to protect this land so it can't get developed. And so animals can flourish. Like, no, we're going to protect this land so you can drill, ruin it. And then no one can live close by because they might get cancer. Yeah. Literally like just Chernobyl, (laughs) these areas, like what the, yeah. And, and you know, like we said, to say fracking is without its benefits would be a lie. I want it banned ASAP by all accounts. Like I'm not going to pull any punches here. That's an issue that for me, I stand very firmly on, but I also recognize that you can't just ban fracking without disrupting many people's livelihoods. And then on the other hand, to say that, you know, fracking is without its negatives would be an even bigger lie than to say it's without its positives. And there are economic benefits, but like we said, at what cost? I personally don't think fracking is worth it when you weigh all of the negative impacts. And for me, I think valuing people over profits is really important. And with this industry, I just don't see that happening. I think a solution to you know the concerns that I just expressed about 5.6% of Americans that work are employed through this industry or something adjacent to it, you know, if the government can offer a program that gives free training for frackers and for coal miners for for that um, to then work in the renewable energy industry, I think that would be a really great way to promote clean energy without ignoring the people who use fracking as a way to put food on their family's tables every single day. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I think that's a great idea too. like supplement them with training whatever stipends, whatever it is in order for them to make it a transition into a a clean energy job. Yeah. And it's not like they're bad with their hands. You know what I mean? Like people who are working in construction related to fracking or in coal mining or coal factories, they're smart people who know how to use their hands. Yeah. So to teach them, here's how you install solar panels. Here's how you build wind turbines in a factory. Like here's how you transport those it's not like you're asking them to reinvent the wheel. You're taking things that they're probably good at, just haven't used in this practice and making it available. That way we can start to transition to a cleaner energy that doesn't result in people's water supply being destroyed by chemicals. But then also those people who use it for their day-to-day life, they can still have a job. And I know it's easier said than done, but we're talking in an idealistic world here where this is what we would love to see happen. And for this, that's personally how I feel. Yeah, so I think that's a pretty good place to end that segment. Yeah, I think if we keep going, I'm going to get too fired up. (laughs) (laughs) So that'll do it for this week's episode of TPT. Next week, Nick and I will be back in the studio with another episode. And we want to get some listener engagement next week, kind of as a thank you to the listeners for supporting the show for uh, a couple weeks now. And also just make it more fun for you at home. So 
we're going to be doing, instead of a feature story next week, some listener Q&A. So you can send in your questions on Twitter, Instagram, or via email. We'll be reminding you on all of our social medias throughout the week. And you can ask anything. You know, Ask me about environmentalism. Ask Nick about audio production. Ask us about ourselves or each other. Like Whatever is on your mind, we're going to throw a bunch of questions in from the show. And we're going to dedicate a good chunk of time at the end of the show to help you get to know us better and help answer any questions you might have that we haven't covered very well so far. That includes topics we've glossed over or stuff that we haven't spoken about at all. So ask away. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at planettodaypod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We'd appreciate if you could share the show with a friend or two or three or God, if you have four friends, that is sweet. Do that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Tell someone you think would like the show or share our posts on your social media pages. You know, just help us grow. We're having a lot of fun with this and the more fun we have, the better it is, I think. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, send them in. If you see a story you'd like for us to cover, send that too. And if you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, you can let us know and we can try to make it happen. Um, in the next couple weeks, we are going to have some really cool guests on the show and I'm excited for you to get to know them. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on Google or Spotify or Stitcher, the reviews on Apple help the show grow the most. If you don't feel like the show is worth five stars, you can let us know that too. And I promise we can take any constructive criticism as long as that comes in the form of a five-star rating. <laughs> the Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are produced every week by Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show. Nick, where can our listeners keep up with you? Yes, so you can follow me on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Our logo was made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Peace.